really is a privilege to be with you today. I've heard of your church over the years, and I've appreciated it and respected it from afar, but to have the opportunity to spend the Lord's Day with you is a great honor and a great privilege, and I've looked forward to this for some time. I did chuckle a bit when I received the promotional information and learned that you had selected for your theme for this summer, Under Construction. Because our church has had a lot of construction going on, just like you have, and it seems like every direction you turn, there's some kind of construction thing going on. We did just a couple of weeks ago um, finish up and open a brand new community center for the people who live in our town, and um, we're really glad about that, pretty fired up about it. It's some new opportunities to serve. There's a lot of things on the inside of that facility. It is. It's like a giant YMCA. We don't have anything like that on our side of town, but also outside of the facility is a brand new skate park, and we don't have a skate park within a six-county area of where we live, and so um, we decided, you know, our church ought to show love to the tattooed and the pierced, and um, so uh, we opened that up a couple of weeks ago too, and um, that has been very, very interesting, and um, I'm getting to know some people who live in our community that I never knew before, and um, that's what that's all about, and so we had that construction thing going on, and uh, then after our church family committed to a three-year capital campaign in order to make that happen. We had a family totally unrelated to our church, had never met them before, walked in the door off the street and gave us 100 acres of property along with some buildings and some money. And that allowed us to build um, some housing units for a seminary that we're starting in a couple of weeks. And so we actually were in the situation where we had construction going on in two different places simultaneously. And um, that's always interesting. So construction here, construction there. And um, then as that's going on, we had this Christian foundation approach us. And they said, you know what? Somebody needs to construct a faith-based residential treatment program for at-risk girls in this town. Girls who are aged 14 to 28, struggling with unplanned pregnancies and alcohol abuse, drug abuse, eating disorder, self-harm. Somebody needs to do that. To which we said, yeah, somebody does. They said, we think you guys should. I mean, you have the church, you've had the counseling ministry for a long time, it's community-based, you've got a Christian school, now you've got the community center, you've got 146 acres of ground. We think you guys ought to do it. To which we said, you are out of your mind. And it, we said it more lovingly than that, but, but something like that. We said, look, we're all tapped out, um, and we're doing all these things for the community already. Some, somebody else needs to do that, or maybe us down the line. They said, well, look, would you at least investigate what it would cost? So we went to a place called Mercy Ministry in Nashville, a place doing a great job with um, that same target ministry group. And they were kind enough to open up their books. They showed us what their facility cost, what it would cost to operate the facility every year. And so we came back and wrote a feasibility study that demonstrated to this foundation that, look, it cost one and a quarter million dollars to build a home for 24 young ladies at a time. But even if we had one and a quarter million dollars just sitting around not doing anything, we still wouldn't do it because we would need... Um, at least half of the operating budget for 10 years committed up front, and that'd be another one and a quarter million. So there's two and a half million reasons why we're not doing that. They came back to us and said, well, fine, we'd like to give you two and a half million dollars. <laughs> it's one of those, you got to be kidding. And I think the Lord's just teaching us that if you try uh, to stretch, if you try to do everything you can to reach your town for Christ, reach your world for Christ, he'll bless you in ways you can't believe. So that became the third construction project. And I was just walking around that before I left for the airport yesterday and they were finishing up the shingles on the roof. And we hope to be able to open that up at the end of this year. And then 
our state decided this would be a great time to widen the state highway out in front of our church. And um, so they're right now. In fact, I was preparing this message and there's these big pieces of equipment. My office window looks out on that state highway, these big pieces of equipment rumbling by. And um, you all invited me to speak about under construction. And um, (laughs) I know a little bit about that. But aren't you glad that that same metaphor was used by God to describe the process that he's trying to take each one of us through? We refer to that as the doctrine of progressive sanctification. And one of your promotional brochures lists Colossians 2.7, have the roots of your being firmly fixed in Christ, that being continually built up in him. Is that happening in you? That's been happening this week. That's what the verse says. Being continually built up in him, becoming increasingly more established in the faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. What a great theme verse. Another one of my favorites on this subject is 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice that's not an option. That's not just for the super spiritual people. That's like for everybody here. And I'm fairly certain that would include you. It's a, it's a command of God. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I think we could easily make the case theologically. God is really interested in construction. In each one of his children growing and changing to become more faithful followers of Christ. I think we could say the same thing about the church corporately. Jesus promised in Matthew 16 that he would, what? Build his church. He'd build it, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. God's people really are to be under construction. Now, if I could just be straight with you for a moment, though. The sad reality is that too many of God's people are not making a whole lot of progress, huh? It's one of those construction sites where there's hundreds of barricades, but nobody seems to be doing much. So the person is stuck in the same sinful habits that they've been stuck in for years, and there's no change. And the people around them are suffering from the fallout of those habits, and nothing seems to be getting any better. Hello, where's the construction? And the good news is, God not only tells us that building ought to be going on, He gives us specific steps so that we can make that a reality. With that in mind, I want to invite you to open your Bible to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I'd like to speak to you about examining the desires of your heart. So James chapter 1, examining the desires of your heart. Too often when Christians think about growth or when they think about construction or they think about development or they think about change, they think about the outer man. They think about behavior. They think about what other people can see. Friends, that's not God's way of building at all. Christian growth is all about the heart. It's all about the inner man. That's why Proverbs says in Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart. You've been doing that this week, by the way? Watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And this text, James 1, 14 and 15, it helps us understand the inner workings of the heart as only the Scripture can do. 
And I'd like to suggest that here we can find three principles to help us build godly lives at the rate he desires. No more of this leaning on the shovel and nothing getting done, huh? James 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's accomplished, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Friends, for people who are serious about the construction process... And for people who are serious about overtime, making genuine progress spiritually, these verses give us three very important principles to get that done. I think it starts right here. Understand the ultimate source of the challenge. If I've learned anything about construction projects over the years, it's this. Before you ever turn the first shovel full of dirt, get all the key players in the same room and figure out the real challenges you're going to encounter in order to get the job done. So get the civil engineers, get the architects, get the attorneys, get the government officials, get the structural engineers, get the contractors, get all the subs in the same room. Figure out what the real challenges are going to be in order to finish that job. And even if it costs $5,000, even if it costs $10,000 to get all of them in the same room for the afternoon, I have learned that is money well spent. And I would suggest to you that the reason many of God's people are not growing at the rate that God desires is because they're not focusing their attention on the real source of the challenge. Now, this passage is very clear about who not to blame. You can't blame God himself. Some people have the audacity to suggest that their failures are God's fault. He enticed me to evil. He gave me more than I can bear. Uh, That kind of reasoning is an attack on the very character of God. What does verse 13 say? God cannot be tempted with evil. Aren't you glad we have a God like that, by the way? Uh, God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone to evil as well. Some people go through significant portions of their lives in bitterness because they believe that God either purposely and maliciously jammed them up Or worse, that God doesn't have the power to do anything about what has occurred in their lives. So they have concluded that their failures are their lack of progress or their lack of construction is God's fault. And we even have some supposed Christian counselors suggesting that certain persons should forgive God as part of their construction process. Can you imagine that? I think that's utter blasphemy. It's incredible how much bad theology is passed off to the church of Jesus Christ under the heading of Christian counseling, by the way. Don't blame God himself. And while the text doesn't specifically say, while we're in the neighborhood, let's just add this, we also can't blame others. See, many of us don't even like to admit ways that we need to change. Can I just be straight with you about that? Is that true? 
And we don't really like to admit the ways that we need to change. And I would just say, we're not going to get anywhere in the construction process unless we're willing to do that. And I hope right now, as I'm talking with you about this, you have three, four, five specific ways that you believe you're least like Christ. Three, four, five specific ways you believe you need to change the most. Many people aren't willing even to think about that list. But some who are willing at least to get that far, then immediately go into the mode of, well, okay, that might be true of me, but let me tell you all of the reasons that is, and let me tell you all of the people I can blame that on. Look, that's as old as the garden itself, huh? Adam, what did you do? God asked. How did he respond? Oh, God, it was my fault. I was rebellious. I did not listen to your command. Please forgive me. Is that the way it went? No, I think it was something like this. This woman that you gave me. That was a really dumb thing to say to God, by the way. If you had given me a better wife, I would not have rebelled against you. Do you see how lame that sounds in God's house on God's day among God's people? If you're crying out loud, Adam, at least stand up and take it like a man, huh? But it's amazing how frequently our minds work just like that. The slowness of my construction project is somebody else's fault. Wrong. (laughs) We also can't blame it on circumstances. If I had just gotten that job, or if I just had better health, or if I just had more money. And by the way, I'm a pastor. I understand that many of us here today could talk about difficult circumstances, and we could talk about different people in our lives, and we could talk about things that God has allowed that we don't understand. But the text is the text. And according to this passage of Scripture, the focus always has to be on our desires Everyone is tempted to sin when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And here's what that means. Those people in your life that you don't really appreciate, you know who I'm talking about, don't you? That tick you off, that make you mad. Those people in your life that you don't really appreciate are those circumstances that you would not have chosen. Fundamentally speaking, that's not the problem. That's just the context in which the real problem is revealed. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let's just suggest that I knock this cup of water like this and water goes on the floor. Well, why is there water on the floor? You can say, well, hello, you must be from Indiana. I mean, it's obvious that there's water on the floor because you knocked the cup. No, do you realize an equally plausible explanation to that question would be the reason there's water on the floor is because there was water in the cup. Had there been coffee in the cup, there would be coffee in the floor. And see, those other people in your life that really honk you off, are those circumstances that you really don't like? That's just this. That's just the context that reveals the desires that already are resident where? In your own heart. Now, if that's true, we need to drill further into this text. Let's talk now about the meaning of lust. That's a very important word for any person who wants to understand the construction process. If you want to understand the change process, if you want to make progress on some of those things on your list that you do not believe pleases God, you have to understand this biblical word lust. It's the Greek word epithumia, and it simply means strong desire. 
In fact, I would propose to you, God has made us desiring beings. We all are filled with strong desires of the heart. And by the way, they're not necessarily all bad. The Bible recognizes that. 1 Timothy 3.1, if a man desires the office of a pastor, he desires a what? A good thing. What's the point there? God has given pastors part of the call. It's a desire in his heart, a passion in his heart. You could even say it correctly, a lust in his heart for that office. And I can tell you right now, there's some days being a pastor isn't all that easy. And if you don't have the desire, if you don't have the passion, if you don't have epithumia for that, you're going to pack up your bag and go somewhere else. You'll never make it. So, so there's not, not all desires are necessarily wrong. Now, let's just push the pause button on this for a minute. Think about, think about this from this perspective. What should you be wanting in any given situation more than anything else? Think about some of the things that you really wrestled with this week. Think about some of the times that really tried your soul this week. Think about some of the people that pushed your buttons this week. And then I ask you straight up, what should you have been wanting? Even in the middle of that, what should you have been wanting more than anything else? What should you be desiring more than anything else? And I don't know that there's only one biblical answer to that, but it would be in this cluster I ought to want to please God in that situation, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Or I ought want to become more like Christ in the midst of that situation, Romans 8, 28 and 29. Or I ought to want to glorify God even when it's difficult, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. That's what we ought to want more than anything else. Now, push it one step further logically. Does that mean it's wrong to have other desires rumbling around in our hearts? For example, if I said to you as a married man, I desire to save money every month. That's part of my budget. Is that a bad thing? Is it bad for me to want to save money every month? No, I think you would, you would say that's a good thing for a married person, for any person to try to not spend every last dime he has. You ought to want to try. So do you buy that? It's nothing wrong for me in my heart to have a desire to save money every month. Now think of this. Could that desire ever become wrong? Could it? Could the desire to save money every month ever become wrong? What's the answer to that? Absolutely, when? When it became more important than pleasing God. And when it became more important than being like Christ. When it became more important than glorifying God. When the desire to save money became the chief ruling desire in a given situation. Now, here's a $100 question, no pun intended. How could you know that that desire to save money or any desire in your heart had ever become more important than wanting to please God? Here's the answer to that. It's true twofold. Find out what I'm willing to get in order to save money or find out how I respond when I can't save money. And if what I'm willing to do in order to get it or if how I respond when I can't get it displeases God, is unlike Jesus Christ, and does not honor him, those desires of my heart have now become idols of my heart. And they have been given a status in my heart that will lead me to sin every time. For example, this past Wednesday, we had um, scheduled our senior citizens to come to our home for a picnic. 
And we do that once a year. We call that group the XYZ group, the Extra Years of Zest group. And um, so once a year, uh, my wife and I and our kids, we have that group over to our home for a picnic. It's always a high time and we really enjoy that. We're getting ready for that on Wednesday. I come home from the office Tuesday night. My honey says to me, you know what? I think the air conditioning went out today. It's like 86 degrees in the house and I don't think the air conditioner's running. Well, I went out, sure enough, the the unit wasn't working. I'm messing with the thermostat. Nothing's working, and it's getting hotter by the second. And so I called the guy who who, um, does our HVAC work, and I don't usually bother him at night, but it's kind of like my ox is in a ditch here. We've got these XYZers coming tomorrow. So I I called him. He said, listen, I've got to go downtown anyway. I'll stop by your house and see what the deal is. So he came by, looked at the air conditioner, and he said, look, this thing is like dead. We're not going to put any bailing wire on this, no duct tape on this one. You have to have a totally new air conditioner. And there is no way that we're going to have that done in time for the XYZ picnic. You are just plumb stuck. Now, here's what I would suggest. My response, whatever comes out of my mouth next, what's ever going on on my facial expression, whatever's going on in my body language, whatever's happened with my fists or whatever it might be, whatever is about to happen, my response to that news is going to tell you a lot about the condition of my heart. It's going to tell you a lot about what I'm wanting in my heart. And if I'm wanting money the most, or dare we just say it in God's house, if I'm worshiping mammon the most, then my response to that service man is going to be something other than like Jesus Christ. It's going to be something other than pleasing to God and glorifying him. And let's say I'm standing there just yelling at the serviceman or griping at the serviceman, and you happen to overhear that conversation. I would suggest it's going to take something a whole lot more than, Steve, Steve, you need to speak more kindly. Because the problem, fundamentally speaking, is not the condition of my tongue. The problem, fundamentally speaking, is the condition of my heart, my inner man to which my tongue is connected. See, I've not been controlling my desires And the principle is this, find out what you want in a given situation. And especially those times where you tend to blow it, especially those times, those people with whom you especially tend to blow it, find out what you're wanting in a given situation and you found out an awful lot about yourself. And I would say to you as a pastor and as a person who's done a fair amount of counseling over the years, too many of God's people do not slow down long enough to give careful attention to what they're really wanting and whether that pleases God. Now you might say, well, you know, you act like you know that this is true of me. You don't know me. Well, let's go back to the text then because I want you to notice the universal nature of this. Verse 14 says, how many men? Every man See, we do what we do because we want what we want. And according to this passage of Scripture, that is universally the case. Now, something else about the text. Yes, it's universal, but that doesn't mean our desires are identical. Because notice the personal nature of this. James 1.14 says, we're drawn away and enticed by our own lust. It's the Greek word hideos, from which we get the English word idiosyncrasy. And here's what that means. If you're trying to track along with what we're saying, the desires that really motivate you, 
The desires, when you're not controlling them with biblical truth, that really lead you into sin, what might really fire you up, your characteristic passions might not be anything like the characteristic passions of the person sitting right next to you. In fact, you might say, I can't figure out this wife. And the wife is saying, I can't figure out this husband. And the answer is, in part, you're operating on two different sets of desires. And what's important to him is not important to her and vice versa because we're talking about idiosyncrasies. We're talking about hideous epithumias. We're talking about your own lust. For example, go back to the air conditioner story for a minute. Let's say you're watching me. And I, by the way, I didn't dress down this service man. He's one of our deacons, okay? So I try to teach those, treat those guys pretty well. And, and so the, the bottom line is I, I didn't cuss the guy. But let's just say I had. And let's say I'm, I'm sitting there, I, I, I'm screaming at him and I'm yelling at him and I'm exposing sinful anger and, and I'm displeasing the Lord in all sorts of ways. And let's say you're watching that. Could you automatically conclude that the reason Steve is displeasing God right now is because he loves money in his heart and he wants money more than wanting to please God? The answer is no, you cannot conclude that. And here's why. I could be behaving that way for any number of possible desires of the heart. That's why, by the way, you don't treat people who are struggling with alcohol in entirely the same way. Because you can line up 10 people who are struggling with alcohol, and it might be the same brand of booze, but it's 10 entirely different sets of desires of the heart. And the solution isn't deal with the booze. The solution is identify and deal with the desires of the heart. So go back to the air conditioner one more time. You say, what do you mean? You might have been sinning in your communication with that guy, but it might not have been because of the love of mammon. Well, an equally plausible explanation would be this, the love and the lust for the approval of man. Maybe that's what was going on in my heart. Maybe I'm all worried about what the senior citizens of our church are going to think of me or whether I can pull off the perfect social gathering or whether I have the perfectly manicured lawn or the perfectly maintained home, blah, blah, blah. See, now we got the exact same behavior yelling at the serviceman for an entirely different set of reasons, namely the lust for the approval of man. And what I'm saying, if you're trying to track with all of this, is this. We're not going to change if we simply focus on the behavior You'll never progress in the construction process if all you're doing is dealing with the outer man, especially in those areas where you have struggled for a long, long time. You say, what's the upshot of that? Well, here's what we have to do. According to the text, learn to examine your desires in specific situations. See, this passage is only going to be helpful to you if you actually act on the information. And I don't know if guest speakers have the authority to do this or not, but if it's okay, I'm just going to try it. Can I give you some homework? Can I? Is that allowable? Okay, I don't hear anybody saying no, so so we're going to go with yes. I, I would like to give you some homework right now. This is a challenge. I challenge you, first of all, to make a specific list in writing of the three to five ways that you need to change the most. The three to five ways you're least like Jesus Christ. The three to five ways that you need some construction going on and it hasn't been happening. Now, if you say right now, uh, I couldn't think of any of those. Well, here's some advice. If you're married, ask your honey. <laughs> and, and all joking aside, what you might have to do is go to her with a legal pad and a pen and a roll of duct tape. 
and essentially say this, honey, I really want to hear your answer to this question. And there will be no intimidation. There'll be no arguing back. There'll be no sinful anger. There will be no recrimination. The bottom line is I want you to honestly answer this question. And I have this pen because I'm going to take notes on this legal pad. And I have this duct tape because I'm going to put two strands around my mouth so I'm not tempted to yak while you're trying to talk to me. And while I'm being somewhat facetious, that's my way. They tell me at our church, sarcasm is my love language. But anyway, um, <laughs> can you see why they're happy for me to go to other places? Um, I'm being a bit facetious, but the fact of the matter is the reason some marriages are not growing is because people are not open to having their spouse help them see ways that they need to change. And if there's not the kind of authenticity, if there's not the kind of genuineness in your relationship with your spouse where they can help you see ways you need to become more like Jesus Christ, that's not a godly marriage. And when God said he gave you your spouse to be your helper, he wasn't talking about the dishes, okay? He wasn't talking about the laundry. He is talking about helping you fill in your cracks. And the bottom line is many men do not let their wives help them. And that's an equal gender sin, by the way. Many wives, you you talk to them about ways they need to change, you're going to be dealing with the cold shoulder for like a week or longer. You know what I'm talking about? And that is just plumb wrong. And by the way, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the person sitting next to you. But the bottom line is, in in many cases, that's just not happening. By the way, some of your teenagers kind of yakking right now because you say, ah, they're getting on my parents. Let me talk to you for a minute. Do you have a specific list of ways that you need to change? I mean, right now, could you give a specific list, three, four, five ways that you really need to change to become more like Jesus Christ? And if you say, I'm not sure I could, well, who do you think you ought to ask? Your mama and your dad. And you ought to say to them, listen, I'm not going to stub up. I'm not going to pout. I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to run around screaming, blah, blah, blah. I really understand that God gave you to help me see ways that I need to change. And I'm going to listen and I'm going to learn like a wise person instead of a fool. Now, after we got that out of the way, let's get back to the notes. I was a little bit off there. Um, After you've got a specific list of ways that you need to change, then I just want to encourage you to ask this. How much attention have you given to the desires of the heart that produce those behaviors? Honestly, now, before God, how much attention have you given? How introspective are you? How much attention have you given to the desires of the heart that produce those behaviors that displease the Lord? And what does your answer to that question say about how seriously you really want to change? Do you agree with Jesus when he said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart? Now, if you're going to do this, if you're going to take me up on that homework assignment, I need to prepare you for a couple of things from the text. Beware of the deceptive nature of your desires. James says this, your desires can entice you. That is a word. James is trying to help you see what your desires can do to you by helping you think about hunting and fishing. That word enticed is from the world of hunting and fishing. Some of you, I'm assuming you like to hunt. Are you like the fish? What's the first thing you get when you're going fishing? Some bait, right? A lure, something to deceive that fish. God has given our family three children, but we kind of got our kids in a different fashion. All three of our kids have different biological fathers and different biological mothers. That's because two of our kids are adopted. My wife and I have the view that if you're going to be against abortion, you need to be for adoption. And so we've had the privilege and the honor of adopting two of our three children. Our third child is Andrew, our son. He's 14 years old. Andrew's a special needs child. 
Andrew is blind. He has some other abnormalities in the development of his brain. He functions like about a five or six-year-old child, though he's 14 years old. He's a good-sized boy. Well, remember what I said to you earlier. This family walks in from just totally off the street and gives our church 100 acres of property. And on that property was a stocked fishing pond. Now, is that of God or what? A stocked fishing pond, because when you have a blind child, one of the things that they really love to do, at least Andrew does in the summer, he loves to go fishing. And so Andrew and I hang out at the pond a lot. And just last week, we caught that bass. And um, that is a honking big bass, in case you haven't figured that out, right on this little pond. In fact, Andrew went home and announced to his mom that it weighed 50 pounds. (laughs) So you can tell I'm kind of training him right on the fisherman thing. But... um, The bottom line is, you know how we caught him? We tricked that fish, that's how. And I'm a meat fisherman. We we went to Walmart, we got some night crawlers, and we put one of those night crawlers on a hook, and we cast it out there, and that big old bass thought it was dinner, and it turned out to be something else. We tricked that fish. And that is exactly the same picture that James is trying to conjure up in your heart and mine. Our desires, if we do not control them with biblical truth, they will deceive us every time. They'll trick us. Well, I deserve a life where everyone functions on my schedule and it's okay for me to be sinfully angry when they don't. Ha! Your desire tricked you. Or I have to have friends who always include me in all of their activities. Or it's okay for me to pout or gossip behind their back. Ha! Yeah, your desire tricked you. Or I, I must have the perfect body and if I don't, I'm going to obsess about it all day long. Ha! Your desire tricked you. Or I want to spend whatever I want to spend financially and never be held accountable. <laughs> your desire tricked you. I deserve to feel the way I want to feel at all times, so it's okay for me to abuse booze or abuse drugs or abuse illicit sex or whatever because I deserve to feel the way I want to feel at all times. Just like a fish that got taken by the bait. Our desires, if we're not careful, will deceive us. That's why James says in this text, don't be, what? Deceived, my brethren, Then he goes on to say this, be concerned about the controlling aspect of your desire. The next part of that metaphor is your desires, if you don't control them with biblical truth, not only do they deceive you, then they draw you away. And it's just like we did with that bass the other night. Drew and I got a great thing going. He sits in the lawn chair. I cast it out. As soon as I get one on, it is the Drew and Daddy fishing team. And I hand him the rod, and he and I cranked that thing in together, and we knew we had a big one on. It actually came up out of the water. It looked at us. He tried to spit it out. We gave him a little lip massage on that, and we brought him in. You ever thought about what is a fish thinking when he's being drugged across the top of the lake by its lips? When he's being drawn away by a fish? You ever ask yourself this question? Here's the answer. I can't believe I fell for that. I can't believe I did that. How in the world did I get in this situation? My mama told me never to. (laughs) But now listen, listen. Isn't this the case? We've all been right there, feeling just as foolish as that fish. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. How in the world did I get myself in this again? And the answer is, you did not control what you wanted. 
You were not giving careful attention to your heart. John Calvin said this, the human heart is a factory of idols. In other words, if I don't control my heart with biblical truth, it will regularly produce desires that take the place of God and his will. You say, where does that lead us? Well, thirdly, be encouraged because of the power of the gospel. This information is not in the Bible to frustrate us. It's here to direct us to the cross of Jesus Christ. And friends, here's some great news. Do you realize that in Christ, God can help you change the fundamental direction of your desires, the fundamental direction of your heart? That's why we read in places like 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I'm working with a man right now who gave me the permission to use his story, but you talk about a guy who's wasted his life just squandered a significant portion of his life on alcohol and drugs and illicit sex. And now it's ruined his family. It's ruined his marriage. It's ruined his business. It's ruined his health. It's ruined his finances. And Jason mentioned earlier, we have a community-based counseling ministry. We've been doing that for over 30 years. And the people in our community know that if you're having a problem in your life, you can come to faith and you'll find answers from the Word of God. And we have people who are trained and ready, our pastoral staff, several of our physicians from our church who come apart from their medical practices to serve with us on Mondays, a number of other trained um, lay people in our church. And they know, our community knows that if you have trouble and you want to get it from the Scripture, go to faith and they'll help you and they'll do it for free. And this man came and under those um, circumstances, and he'd already worked with a number of secular counselors, frankly paid him a bunch of money, He'd already worked with a number of Christian counselors. They had encouraged him to blame his problems on his past or blame his problems on the economy or blame his problems on people who had wronged him. And that felt good for a minute. It was like eating chocolate cake on an empty stomach. It felt good to say that his problems were everybody else's fault, but that never satisfied, that never solved the problem of the heart. And so he was constantly going back to the bottle and back to the drugs and back to the strip clubs. He had literally organized his life around what he wanted and where he thought he could get it. And somebody needed to love that man enough to help him see that his desires had deceived him and his idols had let him down. He wasn't some passive victim of his circumstance. He was an active worshiper in his heart, and he had selected the wrong God. And it was only when he was willing to come to that realization that he was then prepared, that's called repentance, that he was then prepared to say, I need a new God namely one who can save me from my sin and namely one who is worthy to take charge of my life. And Friday before last, he walked into my office and he said, I'm ready. I am sick and tired of what these wrong desires of the heart, what these wrong gods have done to me. I want to trust Christ as my Savior and my Lord. And friends, that's where the construction process begins And I'm sure in a group this size, there will be people here, and maybe you've tried to change and tried to change and tried to change and tried to change, and you've not been able to. And fundamentally, the reason is because you don't know the Lord. There's never been a definite time where you've trusted Christ as Savior and Lord alone. And if you're trying to change without a personal relationship with God, it's like trying to iron the wrinkles out of a shirt without having the iron plugged in. 
and it will never work. I would invite you to place your faith and trust in Christ today. Now, if you say, Steve, I've already done that, so what do I do as a believer in Christ? Oh, there's two really important answers, and we're going to be done. Here's what the first one is. In Christ, you have to learn to mortify desires that don't please God. And I'm hoping some of you, maybe many of you, will take me up on my offer. I hope you'll do your homework. I hope sometime this week you'll make a list of ways that you do not please the Lord, ways that the construction process needs to occur. And then I hope you'll do the hard work of answering the question, what are the characteristic desires of my heart that produce that kind of behavior? What are the things that I'm wanting in those situations that don't please God? And you say, well, what do I do with those desires once I recognize that they're there in my heart? Here's the answer. Kill them. Mortify them. Put them to death. And that's a very important part of the Christian life is learning how to put certain things in the inner and outer man to death. Romans 6, 12, Therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lusts. And we had a great illustration of this. Did you see this back in January? Did you see that picture of that woman in the news? Her name's Nell Ham, and she's a retired woman, and she and her husband, they were just getting ready to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. They were out walking in the mountains when her husband, Jim, was attacked by a mountain lion. And this mountain lion actually had Jim's head in its mouth. So what does Nell Ham, any self-respecting wife, what would Nell Ham do in that situation? And the answer is exactly what happened. You can check it out on the internet if you don't believe me. She picked up a log. And she started beating that mountain lion with a log while it still has her husband's head in its mouth. By the way, if you're thinking about getting married, you might want to check your fiancé out on that skill. (laughs) But that's exactly what Nell Ham did. And the mountain lion would not release. And, And thankfully, the mountain lion's mouth was so widely open that it had no ability to crush down. So just sitting there like that. So Jim was still able to talk. So he says to Nell, look, there's an ink pen in my pocket. Pull it out and push it in the mountain lion's eye. And that is exact. I'm sorry that sounds bad, but don't don't make me feel bad for that mountain lion, okay? (laughs) This is called cause and effect, reaping what you sow. And so Nell gets the ink pen out of her husband's pocket, jams it in the mountain lion's eye so hard that she breaks the ink pen in half. And the mountain lion still will not release her husband's head. So you know what she did? I'm telling you the truth. She picked the log up again. And she started beating on that mountain lion. I mean, don't you love Nelham? You got to love this woman. She's beating on the mountain lion some more. Finally, the mountain lion released Jim's head and turned around and looked right at Nell. And then he spun around and walked the other way. I would suggest that's the smartest decision that mountain lion made all day long. (laughs) But think about that woman. I mean, she's beating the fire out of that mountain lion because of the damage it's doing to her hubby. And I want to suggest that's exactly what you have to do to wrong desires of your heart. And too many of God's people, there's all these barricades and nobody's getting anything done. Are they just leaning on their shovel waiting for someone else to do the work? This is work. But God wants you to take the information in passages like this and identify wrong habits and then say in your heart, knock it off. I've got to stop wanting that. I've got to stop allowing that desire to entice me and draw me away into sin. Say, is that the end of it? No, it's not. 
Because the other side is this. In Christ, you can learn to develop desires that honor him. See, it's not, well, Steve is saying we shouldn't have strong desires. No, we ought to have strong desires for the right thing. Like Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. We're talking about a transformation of the desires of your heart. So no more of this. I have to have a wife who does things every way I want her to. To instead, I want to be more like Jesus Christ, even when my wife isn't doing everything I want her to do. I have to have parents who are as cool as I think they ought to be. To I have to please God, even when my parents aren't everything I would like them to be. I must have a boss that appreciates me the way I think I should be. To I must honor my Savior, even in the midst of an imperfect work environment. And if you say, Steve, that's hard. It's hard to identify those issues of my heart like that. It's hard to put wrong desires to death. It's hard to replace them with right ones. To which I would say, God wants us to constantly put ourselves in positions where we're doing hard things, huh? I showed you that picture of Andrew and me fishing. Here's one last picture. It's of Andrew and me biking. Andrew's loved to ride bikes. That shocked me about a blind child. He loves to ride bikes. So when he was a little guy, we had him on a car seat behind the, or a bike seat behind my bike, and he, we bounced all over the place. Got too big for that, so we bought a trailer, one of those bike trailers. We took him around for years in that thing until he was so big we had to fold him into that trailer. We tried him on a regular tandem bike. It was just too high. He, it frightened him. And I thought we were going to have to give up our biking until we found the tandem recumbent. Sits very low to the ground, so it's, it, he's not frightened at all. It's two independent bikes. We can both paddle. I obviously have to be in front for the steering thing, but we go all over the place um, in that bike. The problem is, Andrew doesn't always like to do his part. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'll say, man, this is getting harder, and I realize he's not paddling. So I'll say back to him, son, do your best. Son, do your best. Son, do your best. One day I was telling him that, and he said, Dad, I really don't want to do my best. I want to do my worst. (laughs) And I said, son, we're never going to get home unless you do your best. Finally, I hear him cry out these words. Oh, God, please help me pedal. And you know what? I would suggest to you that's the gospel. In a childlike way, he understands when he's in a position where there's something hard, he has to cry out to his God. And I would say the same thing to every last one. I understand what we're talking about. It's hard. The metaphor of construction has with it hardness. But God wants us to use his word to do hard things. I hope every one of us this week will give more careful attention to the desires of our hearts. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of studying your word today. Lord, I thank you for this great passage And I thank you most of all that in Christ, we really can change the desires of our hearts. And Father, wherever we are in our journey with you, I pray that we would take what we've heard and I pray that we would apply it in a way that pleases you and in a way that produces growth in the construction process. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.